Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shifu Klein. We've learned a lot on Raise the Line about the ever-growing amount of data available to healthcare providers and how that can seem overwhelming to them. Well, today we're going to hear about how that data can be analyzed and made useful in providing care, among other purposes. Joining me is Dr. Nigam Shah, Chief Data Scientist at Stanford Healthcare and a Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Data Science at Stanford. His research group analyzes multiple types of health data to answer clinical questions, generate insights, and build predictive models for the learning health system. At Stanford Healthcare, he leads artificial intelligence and data science efforts for advancing the scientific understanding of disease, improving the practice of clinical medicine, and orchestrating the delivery of healthcare. Dr. Shah is also an inventor on eight patents and patent applications, has authored over 200 scientific publications, and has co-founded three companies. And before we get started, I'd like to thank Morgan Cheatham, who's a fellow uh, medical student, entrepreneur, venture capitalist in this case, who first introduced me to Dr. Shah. So uh, Dr. Shah, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Absolutely. It's a great pleasure to be here. We always like to ask our guests to, in their own words, tell us how they got to where they are today. So how did you get interested in both being a physician and then your you know, data science and biomedical informatics? That's a great question in the sense that the right answer here is part luck and part being at the right time. Uh, so in my case, when I finished med school, one of our family friends who got his PhD in the U.S., convinced me to try my hand at research and said, you know, if you don't like it, you come back to your residency and you can uh, you can be your orthopedic surgeon, which I was going to be. And then that was in year 2000. And that's when the use of computation for genomic sequencing sort of hit the front page news everywhere. You know, New York Times, the Science Magazines and so on. And I got really excited about like, oh, this is new. How could I use a computer to uh, do better biology or better science of medicine? So I ended up doing a PhD in molecular medicine. And along the way, I convinced my committee to essentially do a minor in computer science. And when I finished, everybody said, doctors who use computers and li like reasoning systems and such, I'll go to Stanford, so you should go there. <laughs> and so I came here in 2005 and never left. That's a good decision. Um, we actually recently had uh, Lloyd Miner, uh, the dean, as you know, of Stanford on the podcast. And clearly it's the right place, right time. There's so much innovation going on there. Let's talk a bit about your history. Like, What are some of the things you've worked on once you joined Stanford in terms of biomedical uh, informatics? And then how has that evolved? Plus, if you can comment on your actual physician career, like did you, you finish, you got your MBBS, did you practice? Like, I would love to hear more about that too. Sure, sure. So I did the one year of internship that's required to complete the MBBS degree. Uh, so I did my three months in internal medicine, surgery, OBGYN, and primary care. Uh, other than that, I have not practiced after that, so I wouldn't trust myself to treat myself at this point. Um, and in terms of research, so 2000-2005, I was very interested in using reasoning engines to make sense of molecular data. And then along the way, I discovered that the amount of data available in structured form, and which as someone from Elsevier, you'll appreciate, is very limited. Most of it is text. And so 2005 to 2010, roughly speaking, I spent time working on knowledge representation, text processing techniques in order to find data and extract facts from it. 
And then 2010, I sort of went on the job market, got a faculty position, and so applied all of that I'd learned from 2010 to 15 to pharmacovigilance to extract things from the electronic health record as opposed to just biomedical text, uh, which is freely available. You know, being at a medical center, we had access to the EHR. So I got tenured in 2015. And then I said, well, what would be the ultimate use of information extracted from the EHR? And at least the answer I derived at was to make better decisions for the next patient that walks in, uh, in the door. And so 2015 to 2020, we worked on something called the Green Button Project, where we ran a bedside service that given a case, we would go through all the EHRs that Stanford had and uh, apply everything I had learned from text processing to statistics, to reasoning engines, to cohort building and phenotyping and all of that informatics toolkit, so to speak, and provide a report to the physician who was treating the patient about what happened to patients like mine. So we ran that for uh, a year and a half in the end. So it took a while to build all the tech and infra. And then we did 100 cases, wrote a paper, and then spun out a company, Atropos Health, which actually Morgan, who you just uh, referred to, is, uh, is a huge fan of. Uh, so I you know, went from tenure to full professor. I'd done two projects, pharmacovigilance and this green button thing. And I was like, all right, what do I do next? And I wrote up a, a two-pager on how can data science improve a healthcare system? showed it around to my department chair, you know, Dean Minor, our CEO, and they said, well, you know, why don't you do it? And so that uh, led to the chief data scientist job. That's incredible. What a journey. And uh, I do want to talk a little bit about kind of the very interesting set of hats you wear, right? You're a researcher yourself. You run a lab. You're in leadership as chief data scientist. You're the founder of three companies. So what does the average day in the life look like? for you, if you, if you can even summarize something like that. You have to be very disciplined with time. As, as I often tell my students, time is the only non-renewable resource. You can lose a car, you can lose money, you can lose clothes and a passport and a phone or whatever, everything can be replaced. Time cannot be replaced. So prioritization of time is uh, sort of something I'm, I'm really a stickler about. So that I think is sort of the secret sauce prioritization, being able to say no to good, exciting things so that you can focus on what you're currently working on. So typical day, I actually don't work that many hours. In fact, you know, I like to watch TV with my kids and go to bed by 10.30 p.m. on most days. Um, but the times I am working, it's focused on a specific thing, time-bound and deadline-driven. Yeah, that's great advice. And one of my uh, mentors, um, a CEO coach, used to say to me that no is the amplifier of yes, right? And obviously, another famous person from the Bay Area, Steve Jobs, was very famous for saying, you know, you've got to say no to a thousand things and get that discipline, which then amplifies the core signal from the noise. You know, another favorite quote I learned on this podcast from an edtech entrepreneur was, your timing is perfect if you stick around long enough. Uh, and I feel like, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of individuals who've been at it for a while, you know, you've been at AI, biomedical informatics for decades now. Um, you know, there's been an explosion clearly since November 
2022's release of ChatGPT. It's in the zeitgeist. There's a lot of hype around it. Can you talk to us about kind of this moment in generative AI and AI, uh, you know, and help us think about it as current and future clinicians? Is it more hype? Is there, what are the real applications you're seeing given all this context that you have that many of our learners and listeners don't have? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, this is, I, I love talking about this part. We're not on a video. I'm uh, smiling because outside my office hangs a stained glass plaque that says Summex AIM, which stands for Stanford University's Medicine's Experimental Computer for AI in Medicine. <laughs> it's from 1980. <laughs> <laughs> so the world's first supercomputer for AI in medicine was on our campus in 1980. I recently had the opportunity to write a sort of a short history of AI, you know, how we got to now kind of a uh, book chapter. And we had a little plot showing the different hype cycles that have occurred in AI till date. This is the third hype cycle. There have already been two prior AI winters. <laughs> <laughs> and so for those who are sort of insiders in the space, the thing that is most shocking is the sheer number of humans that are this time caught up in the hype. Mm -hmm. Previous hype cycles were not this big in terms of the magnitude, like, you know, what percentage of the planet was involved? If you ask that question, you know, or what percentage of the US was involved? If you ask that question, today it's probably 20, 30% of the US that is caught up in the hype. Uh, previously was in the low single digits. Uh, so that is, I think, what is unique about this time around. Obviously the other things, uh, we've never had compute that was this powerful. We never had this much electronic data. Uh, and you put those two together, I think we're at a point where there's a good chance that this time it sticks. Now, I still say chance because, you know, we've been down this twice. <laughs> we've had two life cycles. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I'm a huge proponent of systematically verifying the claimed benefits. Let's, in this case, language models, AI, or what have you, whatever is the flavor of the day. Because uh, often what happens is that people try one thing, you know, you, you give one complex case to GPT and it gives you a plausible looking answer. And we conclude that, oh, GPT can, can treat complex cases. That's not quite how it works. Uh, so the analogy I, I would like to plant in, in the listeners' heads is think about driving. We have a human and we have a complex gadget, a machine, a car, basically. Uh, and the way we do it, we send the human to take a test, a multiple choice test at the DMV. We take the car and we send it to the uh, Highway Safety or uh, Transportation Safety Board, and they do a whole bunch of tests, rollover testing, crash testing, what have you. And then we put the two together and we do a road driving test. But in case of language models, what we're doing is basically taking the car, sending it to take the multiple choice exam <laughs> and saying it's fit to drive. Like that's basically what we're doing when, when we take GPT-4, have it take the USMLE and say now it can practice medicine. That's funny. That's a really good analogy and a good way to think about it. And you preempted my next question, which was, you know, 
when I was catching up with Morgan a couple of months ago, and I obviously had read the paper that you and him wrote, um, and along with other people that you published the preprint in December last year, right? ChatGPT comes out late November 2022. You already have published a paper in December that got a lot of attention, especially from us at Osmosis and education tech companies that said, you know, GPT 3.5 and then eventually 4 performed really well on the US only step one practice questions. And obviously, we're all looking at GPT 5 and you know, where, where is it going to go from here? Um, and people were extrapolating, uh, you know, does this mean we need a trained doctor? How should we select med students? Or, um, and I agree with you that there was a lot of hype from that, that I'm sure you and Morgan and others wanted to temper down as you have been here. But I would love your opinion, having trained as a physician yourself, um, what should medical schools be doing right now, right? Like, does it still make sense to select students who can take tests great, like really well? Because the people who are getting into med school now will be practicing in late 2020s, early 2030s. By then, we'll have GPD-7, right? Right, or other LLMs that you and your colleagues will create. Yeah, so I think the question to ask is what can we do with this technology? rather than what can this technology do to replace parts of what we do. Hmm. So I love to give another colorful analogy. Uh, one of our colleagues here, Eric Brinjolson, has this idea of what he calls a Turing trap. So most people have heard of the Turing test where a computer passes itself off as a human. And a lot of people would say GPT-4 has passed the Turing test. The Turing trap is where we limit our imagination to having computers or AI models only do those things that humans already know how to do. Hmm. So we basically automate stuff we know how to do, like automate billing, automate history taking, automate note taking, and, and so on. That's the Turing trap. What we should be asking is what is it that this human and a computer together can do that neither of them could do alone? So if imagine if the Greeks had automated everything they did 3,500 years ago, you know, or medicine automated everything we're doing even 200 years ago, like bloodletting would be automated. <laughs> we would have a machine that would do bloodletting, yeah. right? But we didn't fall into that trap. And so I think what we need to be thinking is today we have primary care doctors with a panel of, say, you know, 1,500 patients, 2,000 patients. Can these things enable a primary care doctor to have a panel of 5,000 patients? Can they reprioritize work? So when uh, you know uh, my radiologist colleague come up for the job on Saturday morning on a weekend and there's 140 x-rays to read, the normal ones are at the bottom of the pile. Hmm. So instead of getting caught up in, you know, oh, we're going to put doctors out of business, the mindset should be, what are the things that I can completely offload from a doctor? And that is different from having a human in the loop. Because a lot of the obvious answer that everybody says, oh, we'll just have a human in the loop. It's like, no, no, that actually increases my work. Because I have to check every damn thing that this produces. But focus on taking off 30% of my job. History taking, for example. Uh, translating instructions into a reading level that the person expects or in the language they expect. Going to education, you know, right now, most med students end up spending four or $5,000 buying teaching material and USMLE question banks, so to speak. 
Why can we not generate those questions? Why can't everybody have questions generated on demand based on the last 10 questions you answered and what you got wrong? That is the way by which we can leverage these technologies to help us train better, as opposed to be fearful of them uh, and taking over our jobs. Yeah, no, I love that nuance. And I've never heard that term Turing trap, but it reminds me of uh, a decade ago, I was at, on Stanford's campus and there was a talk Vinod Kosla gave, who obviously is famous for Cisco and, you know, is a Kosla Ventures guy who he said famously, infamously, that 80% of what doctors do will be obviated or replaced in, I think, a decade or by 2030. He was a bit ambitious with the timing, um, but also the media misinterpreted it and said 80% of doctors won't be needed by that time, which clearly is not what he was saying and not the case. Like the, the role of a clinician will change. Yep. However, there was this paper that came out recently that I would love your opinion on, which is on human-computer interaction, because I think they were looking at radiologists and they had three groups, the radiologist diagnosing images, they had AI just diagnosing images, and then they had the radiologist with AI diagnosing images. Uh -huh. And the third group counterintuitively performed the worst because uh -huh. the, the radiologist didn't really understand, and the ones in that group didn't understand how to use the AI and were overruling it when they shouldn't have or were putting too much stock in it when they shouldn't have, um, whereas the other two groups performed better, I think almost equivalently with the current models we have. Do you have any thoughts or commentary about those pitfalls to look out for? Uh, things like human-computer interaction or bias or any of that? Yeah, no, I, I think it builds into the point that we we're just making. And so in that scenario, you're creating a dyad of a human and a computer, but the algorithm does something which the human has to then check. It's like somebody giving you advice, which you then have to verify whether you're going to trust it or not. One it increases your work. And two, if you're not sure about the quality of the advice, it confuses you. And so that's exactly the point I was making, that instead, if we use AI in a way that it reads through the 100 images, and it says, these 20, I'm sure of. You don't need to worry about them. Spend your time on the other 80. That's actually helping me. Otherwise, it's providing me with irrelevant information or potentially wrong information or hallucinated information that I now have to do the extra labor to spot. So even in the work we did with uh, with Morgan about the GPT 3.5 and 4, the headline result was in about half of the responses, 12 doctors could not agree whether the GPT response agreed with the uh, prior known answer, disagreed with it, or was wrong. No majority. So now imagine if you sought a second opinion from somebody and you showed it to 12 people and 12 people can't agree, that second opinion is useless because it's confusing. And so I think this gets back to this whole idea of doing this driving test or what I would call functional testing. Because if we use it in practice, is it delivering the value that we had hoped? And if not, Maybe we should change the manner in which or the place in the workflow where we use these things. No, that absolutely, that nuance is critical. You know, I think a lot of the discussion on AI has been you know, the abstract. This is going to discover all these new drugs and, you know, cure cancer and global warming and all this. So the abstract hype slash, you know, and that goes negative hype too. It's going to, AGI is going to kill humans the first chance it gets. We'll get into some of that. 
you know, that's abstract. Then it goes academic. And obviously you and several others publish papers, which are academic, but you also have this role as, you know, chief data uh, science at Stanford Healthcare. What are some of like the boots on the ground, actual applications that you've seen that you've led at Stanford Healthcare right now that you're most proud of that are lowering costs, improving quality, whatever it is, like anything you want to, and it doesn't have to be Gen AI. It could just be something that you're proud that you guys worked on over the last decade. Yeah, so the example I will use is something very pedestrian. It's a classifier, a supervised learning classifier. Now, there are articles out there that says we trained a deep learning model to do what we what I'm going to talk about. And we did train a deep learning neural net for that, but we're not using it. The thing we're using is something much simpler, a gradient-boosted model, a simpler model. But the, the crux of what makes it work is given the model's prediction, and in this case, the model predicts the chance that somebody dies in the next 12 months. Given the model's predictions, you have to be absolutely clear what you're going to do. Who is going to do that? Do they have the capacity and the incentive to do that? Is the cost structure of the, of the intervention such that we can sustain it long term? And do the various stakeholders, patients included, agree with that? So we started using this classifier for predicting who is likely to pass in the next 12 months. And we built like three of those models, published a bunch of papers. But then when we deployed it, we worked with physicians who lead our serious illness conversation planning, those who lead palliative care practices. We worked with an ethicist to do a survey of all the stakeholders to say who should be shown the model output, what would they do, we redesigned the downstream care workflow so that it's not just the physician who has to take action, a respiratory therapist or a nurse practitioner, or in some cases, a medical student can pick up the serious illness conversation guide and have that conversation with the, with the patient. And then we watch that, okay, we're flagging patients, all right, 80 or 100 a day. We're triggering these alerts for people to have those conversations. We've taught them what to do. Are they doing it? And we set a goal that we want to get. So there's a quality metric to have uh, advanced care planning done to those patients that, that need it to be above a certain percentage, maybe 10%, 15%, I forget the exact threshold. And then we made sure that we were following through at a high enough rate that we crossed that threshold. So you have to do all of these. You have to do the model, you have to do the workflow, you have to manage capacity, you have to manage throughput, follow through, and watch it so that if it's not working, you can then shut it up. That's a great example. And that's, you know, hopefully there's a case study around that or you publish that where... Yeah, we, we have. It's in the, yeah. there's, a, there's one in the New England Journal Catalyst. And then we are also uh, getting a Hims Davies IT award uh, for doing this, you know, in their sense or in the right way. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think a lot of health systems and physicians and leaders are confused as to how to incorporate this stuff. And that's why I think you, you most recently published this paper in JAMA. We're talking on August 10th. You published it August 7th. Creation and adoption of large language models in medicine. Do you just want to spend a, a minute describing what that paper was getting across and the applications for our learners and listeners? Mm -hmm. So everyone has most likely tried ChatGPT by now. So ChatGPT is a software application that is built off of one of two 
LLMs, GPT 3.5 or 4. You can pick in the user interface which one you want to use. Now, when these things are built, first built, and this is from OpenAI's own website, like GPT-3, when it was built and you give it an instruction saying, explain the moon landing to a six-year-old, it would respond saying, explain gravity to a six-year-old. Because those are the most probable words given what you just said. <laughs> and so a human had to then like align the output with what we expect by teaching it. And that that's called adaptation or tuning, depending on how you do it. In one case, you can show it the right answer, which a human types out, and say, look, this is the better answer. Don't say what you just said. Uh, in the other one, you let it produce answers, three or four, and you pick the best one, and then you iterate. And that's called reinforcement learning with human feedback. Once that was done, we got the magic that's called chat GPT. So now the point here is none of these things have been instruction tuned for medicine. Yeah. And we expect them to work out of the box. And why would they? And so the, the core essence of the, of the article is a call to action to the medical community that if you really want to use these things, we have to create the instruction tuning data so that these things produce the output that we expect. So creation and adoption or shaping the creation and adoption of language models in medicine. Yeah, very important because again, there's so much confusion around this and people are misapplying them and don't know the limits and the potential applications for it. I'm curious beyond AI and healthcare, there's been a lot of hype, as I said, positive and negative around AGI, artificial general intelligence. And, uh, you know, you have people who helped create the transformer architectures, uh, neural network researchers, people like Jeffrey Hinton, who have said AGI is going to end the world. There's a lot of risk here. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got, I think, Jan LeCun, who's at Facebook and Meta, uh, who said, no, this is all you know, blown out of proportion. Same with Mark Andreessen and Andreessen Horowitz. Where do you fall in this? Um, do you have an opinion, a strong opinion around AGI and timelines and risk? Or, or is it sort of like too early to tell? I don't have a strong opinion. What I have is a dose of skepticism because of the logical inconsistencies of what is being said. Hmm. So here's the inconsistency. Of all the ones that are saying that these things are so bad and might end humanity, turn off your APIs. They won't do that because they all want to make money. Uh, at the same time, those same people are going in front of Congress saying, oh, this is too dangerous. You should regulate it. To me, that stinks a little bit like a power grab. Because then you'll turn around and say, this is so dangerous that only we can be trusted to use it. And hence, everybody else has to use our APIs. That is the classic definition of establishing natural monopolies. So that's why I don't trust it. Because if the fear is real, why do you have the server on? Yeah, regulatory capture is definitely one one way people have looked at it. Like that, that could be actually what's happening. And then the other piece is I think they would say, you know, if we don't do it, like and we have this race, not only will that hurt our profits and, and our you know shareholder value, but China will do it. And then what happens, right? So it's like a game theory issue, it seems. Uh, right. 
you know, 40 years ago, it was Russia, and now it's China, right? I mean, <laughs> so that's why I'm a little bit skeptical that we're, we're seeing a lot of polemic stances from people, because either they have a lot to gain, or a lot to lose. And I think the, the nuance is getting lost. I mean, even things like when, you know, Travelocity and Expedia came around, there was this panic that people will book their flights to the wrong San Jose and there'll be pandemonium across the planet, right? Didn't happen. So part of it, I think, is overblown. Like, I'm quite sure both sides are overblowing it for different reasons. Um, and the truth will land somewhere in the middle. Yeah, like most things. That's that's a really good example. Um, I had two last questions for you. The, the first is, you said you have children. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners are early stage clinicians in their you know, approaching their careers what advice would you give to any of them your children or our, our listeners about approaching their careers when things seem to be changing so incredibly quickly well two things one uh learn how to learn because whatever you do your undergraduate degree in is not the thing your job is going to be by the time you graduate. Like that I can guarantee. <laughs> and the majors that will exist, you know, 10 years from now are not even defined yet. The boundaries between the classical disciplines is blurring. Like you can't tell a civil engineer apart from a mechanical engineer, from a structural engineer or an architect, right? So get over the notion of like classic boxes and labels. And then second, don't be scared of technology. Like These things are there for us to use for our advantage. You know, I'm sure when Microsoft Word and computers and typewriters came around, everybody said, oh, the death of calligraphy and people will never learn how to write. Again, overblown fear. Uh, Google comes around or calculators come around and people say, oh, everybody's going to forget how to count. Again, overblown. So that same cycle will repeat. People will say, oh, if you're starting to use GPT at a very young age, you know, you're not going to develop these other faculties. I think our school of education disagrees. In fact, there's articles uh, and research out there where they're showing that the, the earlier you're exposed to these things in, in a controlled manner, the better off you are in terms of having a plan on how to deal with them. And a lot of teachers are worried about students using these things to cheat. But imagine what Khan Academy is doing. They're creating these personalized tutors so that everybody has an on-demand tutor that meets them at their level. Like that is amazing. So we, we gotta we gotta proactively pick the amazing and, and stay away from all the fear-mongering. Yeah, that's great advice and, and certainly close to our heart as a, as a company that's also trying to provide an on-demand tutor to our learners that's personalized and adaptive. But I agree with a lot of what you've said there. Um, the last question is an open mic. Is there anything else that you want our audience to know about you, about AI or Stanford that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet? I would say don't get over-indexed on AI. Today, it's artificial intelligence and deep neural networks, and tomorrow it'll be sideways learning and upside-down intelligence. I mean, who knows? Uh, keep the eye on what is it that you're doing with it and ask the question, why are you doing whatever is it that you're doing? Don't get too hung up on the, on the how. 
yeah, that's a great reminder not to not to be a, a hammer in search of a nail, but rather, you know, understand the problems deeply, whether that's a patient you're seeing or the education system, or whatever it may be. So that's some really wonderful advice, Dr. Shaw. I've really appreciated this conversation. You're obviously pioneering a lot of this work, uh, and it's been fun to see everything you've done so far and what you're going to do over the next coming months and years. Well, thanks for having me. And with that, I'm Shiv Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>